This is the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast, where we uncover the alternative investments and strategies that billionaires use to grow wealth. The tools and tactics you'll learn from this podcast will make you a better investor and help you build legacy wealth. Join us as we dive into the world of alternative investments, uncover strategies of the ultra-wealthy, discuss economics, and interview successful investors. Welcome to the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. I am your co-host, Ben Frazier, joined by fellow co-host, Bob Frazier. And today we've got a, a really fun guest. It is Todd Solzinger. And Todd is kind of an expert passive investor, but he also used to be a Silicon Valley uh, finance executive and kind of made the shift a while back into real estate and with a focus on mobile home parks. And so we're going to kind of hear the whole story of Todd's journey, kind of coming from the corporate world to real estate investing actively, and then kind of over the last uh, several years going more passively. And so Todd, welcome to the show. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here. You know, it's kind of an unusual journey going from the high tech, high flyers, you know, super sexy to the to the unsexy. So <laughs> what happened there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I had a, a you know, great career in Silicon Valley and, in, and through that, you know, through working for Silicon Valley companies, actually had the uh, opportunity to uh, spend a few years living in the UK and getting to travel around Europe for a couple of years. So I had a great career doing that, but just, you know, kind of got tired of the lack of control around, uh, you know, I had examples where I'd be working for a great company and they'd say, okay, like we're relocating the entire finance group, uh, you know, 500 miles away. And it's like, okay, you know, I just don't want to get up and like move my family and move to a new place to, uh, place to live. Or, uh, you know, often in, in the technology companies, there's acquisitions. And so, you know, I'd work companies would get purchased and the larger acquired, acquiring company just need two finance groups. So then, you know, kind of you're left looking for your next opportunity. So that happened multiple times. And I, I also kind of got into that, you know, pattern of kind of like trying to chase the next IPO or chase the next, you know, great startup. And those, it's really, it's really just kind of, you know, luck in terms of the kind of company that you get into <laughs> that where you might have the chance to hit it rich. So I've been through a couple IPOs and done okay, but none that I thought that I was going to hit when I was in my early to mid thirties <laughs> working for these can't miss startups that ran right into the dot-com bust and ended up getting sold for pennies on the dollar. So oh, no. um, that got me looking more towards something where I could have a little bit more control and just kind of over a you know a multi-year process kind of discovered real estate and decided I wanted to build a business around that. So yeah, of, of all places to go from kind of the, the high tech sexy to mobile home parks, which you know maybe some <laughs> investors haven't, you know, looked into the what that looks like as an investment. What made you choose that over, you know, multifamily or another asset classes maybe more more well known, especially probably Several years ago, when it was even less on the radar. Yeah, well, I when I decided I wanted to start a syndication business, I looked at a lot of different asset classes, looked at mobile home parks and apartments, self storage. You know, putting maybe putting together uh, acquiring groups of single family homes. And I like mobile home parks one because they were a little bit more of a niche asset. So if I was going to start my business, I decided I didn't want to be like another apartment syndicator. And uh, some of the things that I really like about the mobile home park business is that it's, uh, it's historically really recession resistant, especially in the affordable housing space. There's hardly any new parks being built. So, you know, there's a, probably a handful, there might be five or 10 new parks being built <laughs> across the country every year. 
you know, but they often get redeveloped for greater use. So it's the only real estate asset class where there's a decreasing supply every year. So that made it attractive. And those, there was also just, you know, less competition. You know, I'd uh, uh, talk to some of my apartment syndicator friends and, you know, they'd go into these, you know, $100,000, you know, hard earnest money deposits and best and finals and multiple offers and just this frenzy, especially in some of the hot markets to buy apartments, whereas in the mobile home park space, because while it's growing and more people are interested in it, there, there wasn't kind of that frenzy around trying to require those. So I find you can get better deals, you know, kind of more upside on the back end because a lot of them are run by older mom and pop operators. They're not as run as efficiently. So there's opportunity to add value that way. Well, one of the things we've been tracking for a while, kind of the macroeconomic trend is just there's a lack of affordable housing oh, yeah. and there's a huge affordable housing crisis in the US. And, you know, we've shared a lot of data on this in, in prior podcasts and things, but as the cost and the structural costs and overhead to develop new uh, homes has gone up, it's forced a lot of the developers to go to the higher end of the market. And so they have to build mm-hmm. where there's more margin, right? Uh, to keep their businesses right. afloat. And what's it's left a huge gap on, you know, in single family, especially, but even within that on the lower end, of uh, the entry-level homes, and there's just no new homes at that price point being built. And so I would imagine that that is a very strong demand driver for mobile home parks. Yeah, it is. You know, there's a again a you know, huge need for affordable housing. You know, a lot of the growth, you know, job growth is a lot of times in lower income service level type uh, type jobs, and those people need places to live. You know, that part of the population is growing a lot, but uh, you know, whereas in the you know 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, there might have been kind of newer B class, C class type of apartments being built. Now they're all you know the kind of the higher end uh, A class apartments. So there's a you know huge need in mobile home parks because again they often haven't been run well by kind of older family operators. A lot of parks you might get into and some of the ones that I've purchased have a lot of vacant homes that are owned by the park that can be rehabbed for people to live in or just vacant spaces. I mean, there's literally you know probably millions of combination of vacant homes and vacant lots in mobile home parks that could be you know put to good use affordable housing that wouldn't take the kind of capital that you'd need to build a maybe a new B or C class apartment. I mean, it seems like with the, like you said, shrinking supply, kind of increasing demand because, you know, the homes are really affordable. It seems like it's like the, a perfect investment opportunity. You know, I mean, my impression, I'm not super familiar with it, but that it's just scarce, right? Just very, very difficult to buy because there's so few of them around, that kind of thing. And, you know, so sounds like a perfect opportunity, though. Yeah, I think so. And there's nobody knows exactly how many mobile home parks there are, but the estimates are kind of in the, 40,000 plus range, maybe about five or 10% of those are owned by some bigger operators, including some really traded companies. That's all. But the rest of them, uh, in terms of number of mobile home parks. So, no, still, so it's still not consolidated, the industry. It's no, it hasn't. There's still, it's, it's still very fragmented. Again, there's some, you know, kind of large publicly traded companies, and a lot of those companies really focus on like nicer five star parks in Florida, for example, where it might be two or 300 spaces with clubhouse and pool and really nice, really nice parks. As I see deals come across my desk or in my mobile home park consulting side of my business, new clients I talk to that we're, we're helping consult on parks that they're buying. There's just still a lot of parks out there owned by mom and pop operators or operators that might own, you know, half dozen parks in a local area. Yeah. So a value add strategy seems like it'd be great. Is, is that really the optimal strategy that you've, you guys have, you, you looked at uh, kind of deploying? 
Yes. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, you can find parks again because they, they've been run by a family that's maybe they've owned the park for 20 or 30 years and might be paid off. They're, they might live in the park. They are making a decent enough income from it. But, you know, maybe some houses became vacant and they just haven't decided to fix the houses up or somebody, you know, maybe a house uh, fell in disrepair and they took it out and you have a vacant lot there. So as a syndicator, you might look at that and think, hey, if you came into this park and put in half a million, a million dollars, you could really, you know, boost the NOI for the property. You know, if a husband and wife in their 70s or 80s, they're not thinking they want to take out, right. you know, raise money from somebody or take out another million dollars in debt. So what happens, those parks just kind of stay like they are. And, right. Um, uh, but as a, a syndicator, you can come in and uh, invest in those and really improve the parks. What is that? What is the selling price of a mobile home? I mean, I just don't even have a sense of that. Are they, so they're, they're way cheaper than a new construction build or even a, a used home, right? A previously owned home. They're quite a bit cheaper, right? And uh, smaller square footage and they, less they are. The, the prices have gone up a lot in the last couple of years. You know, combination of increase in uh, raw materials. You know, when the lumber prices went up, mobile home, you know, new mobile home purchase prices went up quite a bit. And because there's been increased demand, as more people have gotten into the space, either bigger hedge funds or larger operators that want to fill vacant lots, they put in orders for new homes. So now the backlog. Depending on the manufacturer and where you're located in the country, you might be looking between six and twelve months if you place an order today oh, wow. to get a new home. And at the lower end, uh, you know, might be you know forty thousand dollars, forty five thousand dollars. At the upper end, for maybe a double wide that's you know a couple thousand square feet, then you might get uh, get over a hundred thousand dollars. So that's really still very very affordable. So once you buy that, you install it, and then then you you basically lease the plot from a mobile home park. That's right, and yeah, it's a combination. Actually, the um, I did read some statistics recently that said about two thirds of new mobile homes being built are actually placed on private land. So mm. if you drive around a lot of parts of the country, you'll just see you know somebody's gotcha. quarter acre, half acre lot with a mobile home on it. So a lot of people in those situations as well, they're deciding, hey, do I hire a contractor and put a stick built house on my property, or can I just buy a manufactured home? And it's place cheaper. It there? Yeah. So it's, so it's yeah, quite a bit cheaper. So if you just go to a mobile home park, well, and presumably, you know, what does it typically cost? And presumably then you get amenities. I mean, there might be swimming pools and I mean, you know, that kind of you get amenities that might be comparable to an apartment complex or something like that. Is that right? Depending on the type of park. So in the apartment complex world, it's kind of like A class, B class, C class and mobile home parks usually rated like one to five. So if you've got five star parks, typically on the coast, sometimes 55 and over communities, then yeah, you'll have a lot of those nice amenities similar to you might have in, a, in an A-class apartment. The parks that I acquire typically don't have any amenities. They're gotcha. really affordable housing. So it's a place to put um, your put your uh, property there. Your, your exactly, your exactly. Mobile home. And then there's that combination of a situation where you might own the home and just rent the lot from the park, or the park can own the house and the park rents it out, similar to the way they would uh, an apartment or single family so home. And there's kind of if you were just renting the space, what are the price ranges? How, how much does it cost you to rent the space from the, the um, one to you know, two, three, four, five? Of, you know, uh, some nicer five-star parks or in, in more expensive areas like here in Silicon Valley, I think they the lots might go for between $1,200 and $1,500, $1,600 a month to rent the lot when you own the house. Gotcha. So in a lot of other parts of the country, you could get <laughs> you could rent an entire house for that or, uh, you know, or, or a nice apartment. In some of the markets, less expensive markets, more rural or in the South, you might be between 150 and 250 per month. And so in those situations, gotcha. it's really affordable. And that so, yeah. doesn't include utilities generally. It typically does not. 
And, you know, every park's different too. That's one of the things I think that makes people sometimes shy away from mobile home parks versus looking at apartments is that sometimes you might find a park that's on city utilities. Other parks might have septic systems, might have a well, uh, so might not have city utilities. So that can make, uh, you know, the, the parks a little bit more complex. But, and then it depends. Sometimes you've got direct metering where people, you know, individually sign up for their own electricity service with the utility company. Other times it might be billed to the park and the park bills out to the tenants. So you've done super well on this in this market in the past. Is there still a place to be? Is this still a really good opportunity in this mobile home space? I think there is. You know, cap rates have compressed everywhere and it's happened in the mobile home park uh, space as well. But you're still typically seeing between maybe a percent and a half to two percent cap rate difference between multifamily apartments in a, in a market and mobile home parks. And there's also the, the upside that you can find in mobile home parks uh, where it's not uncommon to maybe find a hundred space mobile home park that's half occupied. Whereas, wow. you know, it seems like it'd be hard to find a hundred hundred unit apartment building that'd be half occupied, right? It's like those are typically <laughs> wow. more professionally run. But like I said, sometimes parks just uh, do the ownership structure might become vacant over time. So there's often parks that we see that somebody might buy that might just be breaking even or maybe, you know, maybe selling for one or two cap, but because they might have a, quite a few vacant homes uh, in the park that could be rehabbed and rented or vacant lots that can be filled in with the additional investment, then you can get them into the double digit cap rate area, you know, with, with the rent investment. That's amazing. What, what kind of returns? I mean, you're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing in the multifamily space, value add strategies are generally, you know, you can get in the 15 IRR range. What kind of returns are we seeing, you know, have you experienced, number one? Number two, do you think is going forward, what do you think kind of returns can be generated, investor returns? Yeah, I was, you know, investor returns are probably kind of you know, in 15 to 17% range from what I've seen. And again, there's so much variability park to park in mm -hmm. terms of stabilized parks versus one that are kind of in a, you know, one to two year turnaround situation. So I'd, I'd say, you know, the IRRs I, that I've seen on uh, you know, deals I've been involved in or people I've helped, helped consult on in that kind of mid to, you know, basically 15 to 17% range. Seems like you do better if you can find a park that's half, half occupied. And as you said, it seems like you could really hit some incredible IRRs. Yeah, and that's really, and especially, and again, it depends on the kind of park operator you want to be. So there's a situation where and it can be 100% one way or 100% the other way or some mix where the tenants own the home and you rent the lot or the park owned the home, owns the home and you rent it out like a, again, like you rent a single family house out. And, you know, the pros are when you, when the tenants own the home is that they take care of all the maintenance, right. it's their house. You just need to take care of, you know. That would the, seem to be preferable you know, to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> As an investor, you there's know. A, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's less uh, less maintenance, less headache for sure. The returns aren't as high just gotcha. because of the spread that you can get by renting the house out. Like uh, some of the you know markets that I've and I've had parks in Georgia and Tennessee and Arkansas, and in those markets you might get to charge maybe say two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars to rent out the lot. In those same markets, you can rent the house out for six hundred to six fifty. So you got that maybe on a four hundred dollar spread every month. So let's say it's you know, forty five hundred, forty eight hundred dollars a year. Typically, it doesn't take that cost that much to maintain one of those houses. You know, even including turnover. So there is more work to do. You got to have a you know better on site manager. You probably got to have an on site maintenance person to uh, to take care of the homes and to be able to do you know rehabs and to be able to turn them for the next tenant. So there's more work for sure. But in the long run, uh, your returns can be higher when you own the home. Yeah, that's interesting because we've done a little bit, or I'm familiar with lower income investing. 
in uh, homes, you know, the, on paper, the returns look amazing because these are less expensive homes and, yeah, cash and you know, cash you, yeah, you rent these things out and looks amazing. But in reality, it's just they're harder to manage and, you know, higher <laughs> turn rates and, and yes. you know, property damage mm-hmm. and other things, uh, crime, et cetera, just makes it very difficult as an investor to actually realize any of those. Yeah. Kind of returns. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to know to run them. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's people that love investing in A class apartments and people that are comfortable investing in C class. So there's uh, risk return and or, you know, brain damage versus ease of maintenance. Uh, right, gotcha. <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, range that you deal with. So with some of the demand in this space, you know, why aren't more parks being built? Is there kind of structural constraint where different counties or cities don't want more of these parks being built or what? what's kind of constraining the supply? Yeah, what's well, kind of interesting, you know, you know, a lot of cities or counties will say, oh, you know, I've got a huge need for affordable housing. And then somebody says, oh, let's build a mobile home park in this, you know, make a piece of property in town. And, you know, all the neighbors are like, nope, up in arms, fight, you know, fight to the city council to say, you're not putting a trailer park in our in our neighborhood. Whereas if they're built nice and run well, they could be nice communities. So there's that not in my backyard attitude. The other thing is because the mobile homes themselves are personal property, kind of treated more like a car, even they usually have the registration tags in them like you do at the DMV, the property taxes are structured differently. So a lot of times cities look at these and think, okay, well, if we let that 100 unit uh, mobile home park get built and there's, I don't know, 100 kids or 200 kids living there and they're all going to go to the local schools, we're not even generating the income to (laughs) to cover the cost of this park here. Mm -hmm. So sometimes from a economic sense, it doesn't make sense and they don't get approved. So that's kind of a, you know, a couple of things that, that holds people back from doing those. I got a friend of mine, well, I know you may have met uh, Ryan Gibbs, Gibson yeah, sure. Spartan Investment Group. They're in the process of developing a new park in uh, Washington, 55 and over park. And it's going to be beautiful. And, you know, it's probably going to be all tenant owned homes, but like a really nice park, but they really had to fight with the city to get approval for that. And it only works because in that market, the average price of a house is over $400,000 Whereas people are going to be able to move into this community for maybe one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars with a nice house. So in that in that kind of market, it makes sense. But if it's a market where the medium single family house price is you know one hundred twenty five, hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, sometimes it doesn't make sense for an investor to go in and build out all that infrastructure for a park. Do you think that sentiment's going to change ever? It seems like it's just seems like it's not that bad. Why wouldn't cities really open their doors? Is affordable housing? It's only getting worse Mm -hmm. and you know, what's the, there's no answer. The best answer to my I know, mind is I know, this. That's why I, right, right. I mean, I, again, I just look at all the vacant homes and vacant lots across, across the country. And if there was some, you know, government incentive to, incentive to, you know, even help park operators buy homes and fill those, fill those lots, it would make a huge dent, I think, in the, you know, in the need for affordable housing. You know, and also in certain markets, they need more density. I know there's a mobile home park here in San Jose that recently was torn down and they're going to put a, mm, you know, kind of yeah. a 10-story condo in its place. So in those situations, you can get a lot more density in a, you know, per per square you know, square yard. Sure. So in, in dense markets, it sometimes it doesn't make sense to be, you know, horizontal rather than vertical. But other markets where there's, uh, again, lots of land, lots of room to grow, mm. it would, to me, it makes a lot of sense. So as an investor yourself, where do you kind of see specifically in this uh, mobile homes park space, you know, where's the opportunity going forward? I mean, we've, you know, one of our partners, Dan, he's he's uh, done very well in a mobile home park investment and they've recapitalized, I think, two or three times and they, they bought it at, you know, double digit cap rates. And now it's trading for, I think it's, you know, five or under and great, you know, great area of the country. And so it just hit the jackpot on that. But 
you know, he's thinking the the run the the running room and the space is done, right? Because he, he's like he can't just keep going up based upon his experience. But at a broader level, you know, what are you seeing? And yeah. do you still see? Some are you still investing in it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I bought a park in Arkansas in October last year, so there there's still deals out there. They're just harder to find. You know, there's the bigger operators that have gotten into the space and. You know, they're all, you know, sometimes they'll contact me through this consulting company I work for and say, hey, we're looking for 100 pads or more city utilities, all tenant owned homes. Like, it'd be great to find something in like eight, nine cap rate. It's like, oh, okay, you know, five years <laughs> ago, luck. those existed, but, you know, those aren't around anymore. So there's still opportunities out there. But if somebody's used to kind of like buying in at a double digit cap rate, that's those, those are hard to find. Yeah, it's yeah. usually situations to get to that level. You've got to find something that's underperforming that you've got to make additional yeah. investment in and then potentially get out and you know refinance later. Yeah. So kind of shifting the conversation a little bit because one of the things that I love kind of that you can speak to is just passive investing, right? So our our podcast is really focused on more the passive investor, you know, and, and those that have made money and are deploying wealth specifically into alternative investments. And so love your thoughts on the mobile home park space. But what other asset classes are you investing in? And kind of how do you, from your personal portfolio standpoint, create a good allocation strategy? How do you think about that? Well, you know, because I had, you know, I felt like I was really burned by the stock market, <laughs> you know, and I just kind of, some of kind of, it's a lot of it's the timing of kind of when you started to invest, when you were born, when you got into it. But I, I remember specifically, like my daughter was born in 1998. So I, you know, opened up a education IRA and a 529 plan, did all the calculations. Okay, it's going to grow 8% per year. And here's the way college costs are going to grow. And then, you know, the 2000 to 2010, kind of the dark years, no return, right? So I'm like, wow, all this planning, continuing to invest and get to the end of the road, or kind of into this time period. And it wasn't where I expected. So it's like, oh, you got to got to invest more to try to catch up. So I, I, I didn't like that. And I started to kind of educate myself more and learn more about real estate and hard assets and just started to like reallocate a lot of my uh, investments into real estate. And I'm, you know, probably at this point or probably, you know, 75 to 80% allocated towards real estate related, you know, a combination of mobile home parks, single family homes, mortgage note funds, thank you, you know, and a few other types of investments. So, so I, I, you know, I like real assets uh, just because I just, you know, don't trust the stock market. Yeah. So how much of your kind of net worth percentage wise is in mobile home parks? Are you you know heavily allocated there? Have you kind of started pulling some some away in other areas or? Uh, yeah, probably like within mobile home parks is probably twenty five or thirty percent. Okay, because it's you know I, I bought my first parks in two thousand nineteen. So you know as the as the GP putting those deals together, so that's that's probably where it sits right now. Yeah. Okay. And when you're looking for investments personally, are you kind of more focused on income, on growth, kind of a combination, or what's kind of your your personal barometer for determining if a deal's a good fit for you? Yeah, I would say mostly income. I'd probably say if I had to kind of do a ratio, probably 75% income, 25% growth, 55 years old. So I've kind of started to think, you know, shift in terms of how I want to, uh, you know, allocate my investments uh, in terms of risk return and what, what I'm expecting from a growth perspective. The mobile home park deals involved in either from, uh, as I mentioned, I've done a couple syndications and one joint venture with another partner. You know, those have kind of a maybe more 50-50 mix of income versus growth. But yeah, but it's really looking for, you know, tangible real estate uh, investments, which is why I, I, you know, I invested with uh, with Aspen and then prior to that with a company called American Homeowner Preservation. And I just like love the idea of, of a real estate-based investment that doesn't have the, you know, tenants and toilets aspect to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> at, yeah. least from a passive, at least from a passive standpoint. Exactly. What, where else do you find income? I mean, especially with cap rates compressing so much in the past couple of years, it's 
driving a lot of the cash on cash returns down on you know, more traditional asset classes. Any anywhere else that you like for income? Let me see. Well, you know, I've got, I mean, I'm in some other syndications, uh, self-storage syndication. I was in a uh, uh, commercial syndication. So I look for you know, other operators where I can invest passively uh, just as an LP in syndications that those typically you know, have that probably that more of that 50-50 combination of current income, but then potential upside at the back end when they sell the properties. Very cool. You know, a lot, a lot of folks when they start kind of getting into these kind of passive real estate opportunities, one of the biggest challenges initially is, you know, where do you find them? Where, how do you find the right deals, mm-hmm. find the right sponsors to work with? And you maybe had a unique advantage kind of being a, a, an operator and a GP in this one particular uh, market in mobile homes. But h- how did you kind of start to expand beyond that? And how did you find opportunities? What was your, your process for doing that? I think it really comes down to to networking and uh, you know whether local meetup, real estate conferences. Uh, I think some of my first uh, when I first started investing in single family homes, I started in Dallas Fort Worth market because Silicon Valley so is so expensive and it's a very tenant friendly state and the cap rates are so low. And that was you know a combination of meeting somebody at a meetup and then traveling out to Dallas and doing a field trip and uh, and then meeting property managers and brokers and insurance agents. So it's uh, kind of usually kind of a combination of whether maybe potentially listening to uh, podcasts and hearing people talking to other people that may have invested with a, a particular operator and then meeting people face-to-face before investing. Yeah. Awesome. Who, who do you kind of consider your inner circle? You know, a lot of folks kind of focus on you know, traditionally working with financial advisors, um, but they're generally right. going to only you know, have a, a, a one one size fits all investing in the public markets. But you know, who, who kind of have is your inner circle to help you? You know, find the best opportunities to vet them and and uh, source deal flow. Probably, you know, just through the, you know, the I guess maybe the network I built through a lot of the yeah, kind of like real estate conferences that I've gone to, some relationships, other relationships I built yeah. there. I wanted a couple of real estate masterminds. That have just you know a great group of smart people that are investing in a lot of different areas. Who uh, you know, while it's in, in in a lot of ways, this the real estate community is very small, and a lot of people it seems like everybody knows each other and knows all the operators and deals out there. But the more relationships you build, the more you find out that there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things in the market. So I think it's uh, that's probably one of the, the biggest areas I would say is just through some of the masterminds or kind of tighter groups that I belong to of other people that are investing as passive uh, LPs. Yeah. So for you, what's more important, the horse or the jockey? The classic question. I think it's the jockey because uh, you know I've, I've been involved in syndications that the you know the people managing it you know whether it was didn't perform that well from a, I think from a management standpoint or weren't that great from a communication standpoint that made it really difficult. So I think you can take a, a good asset and you know good product and have somebody that's not managing it well and or not communicating about it well to their investors that can. Yeah, that can make the deal not feel good. Um, I was involved in a, a commercial syndication that was that way, and while the syndication overall, you know, didn't meet its all its expectations, but pretty close. But because the communication was so bad during the life of the investment, it just made it continually painful <laughs> right. just to say like, like, what's going on? Why is this happening? And you know, you want to be as a passive investor, you want to be as passive as possible and feel like somebody's uh, you know handling your money in the best way and communicating about it. So I think finding a good operator from that standpoint is is critical, and uh, with with the assumption that you know somebody that's you know smart and trustworthy, they're going to you know manage the asset well. Yeah, absolutely. You know what what has been the best investment you've made in the past decade? Would you say what, what's been? Give us a a win story here. Uh, you know, I uh, I'm actually just about to close on a an RV park motel 
actually in California that I'm part of a small group where we did a lease option, which is a you know, great strategy to buy real estate, but also a lot of times in mobile home parks. We had agreed with this buyer or this park owner rather that we would buy the park at a fixed price in the future, but we would maintain it. We'd operate it. We'd run it. We'd take the profit from it. We'd just pay him a lease option fee. And we're at the point now where we, we have the park under contract. Yeah, that's probably going to be a you know, you know, maybe a three and a half to four X return over wow. a three or four year uh, time frame, And it's because we invested so little, you know, because the, the guy who owned the park didn't want to run it anymore, knew he wanted to sell it, didn't necessarily want to take the capital gains hit at that time to actually sell the park. So he told us, hey, you know, you guys can run it, just pay me my lease option fee. So I'm getting income from it, almost like carrying back a note. So he was happy. We were able to run it and add some value you know, cap rates compressed, the value of the park's gone up. And yeah, you know, me and the, the few people I'm in the deal with should do pretty well. Awesome. Sounds like it. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about this is sometimes, you know, painful to, to think about the, the worst investment, but a lot of times we can lear- <laughs> learn learn from others' mistakes to hopefully avoid them uh, ourselves. But yeah. what, t- talk about a deal that maybe didn't go as planned and maybe why that happened. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the first, this was back in, I know one that did it, probably my, my worst investment was one, one of the first ones I did with a self-directed IRA. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the money out of the stock market. I'm going to open the self-directed IRA and find a good investment. So I found out about this guy who was doing kind of after the financial crisis, like 2008, 2009, this guy was developing four unit kind of townhomes outside of San Antonio. And he would just like build the townhomes, sell them to an investor and rent them out. And he couldn't get financing anymore after the, after the crash. So he was looking for private investors. So I took my self-directed IRA, put money in his deal, and then like you know, one thing after the other. One, you know, he paid a, made a big advance to one of his suppliers. That supplier went bankrupt, and he ran out of money, and the project just totally stopped. Oh yeah. So and afterwards, you know, I found out that like the money that I invested, you know, some of it went to pay down other debt and pay some oh. attorney's fees. So not all of it actually went, you know, Ooh. to the to the investment itself to build these units. And if it would have been a single family home, then I maybe could just said, hey, I'll just like kind of you know, take over this house. Maybe it's half constructed and finish it up. But I was one fourth of a townhome. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then it's like me and three other people trying to figure out, okay, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to settle for? You know, each of us is contacting our attorneys and the builder. And it was, it was a mess. So I got out of it probably, I don't know, half or two thirds of my investment. But Again, the initial story was, hey, I'm just going to need this, you know, this money for Passive. six months, right. 14% yeah. interest, you know, good return, but short uh, sure. time frame. So from a dollar standpoint, it kind of made sense for this guy to borrow that way. So I thought it was going to be like a safe short-term investment until I figured out kind of what else I wanted to do with my self-directed IRA and it did not turn out as planned. <laughs> What'd you learn from that experience? <laughs> like, uh, I think do a better job of really understanding, hey, like I'm giving you this money, like where is it going? Like, is my full investment going right into like, you know, paying suppliers to keep building? And then also, I wouldn't do kind of a partial type investment like that where it was you don't uh, have control, you know, yeah. part of a unit where I just, uh, you know, wouldn't be able to kind of take over one piece of it if, it if it went sideways. One of the questions we like to ask in the kind of past investor spotlight here is, you know, are there any investments that you'll never invest in? Sounds like maybe townhomes would be a one on that list, but <laughs> yeah, like a, a group investment. I know there's been some like private mortgages that I've been opportunities I've been introduced to where you might be able to kind of go in with two or three people and mm-hmm. you know invest in a mortgage, a private mortgage with somebody. And I've stayed away from those because I, you know, in in the event that the person didn't pay and you had to foreclose, then it would be maybe three or four of us that would be involved in figuring out okay, how do we do we rehab it, sell it, rent it out, and I just kind of wouldn't want to be in that. In that situation. 
you know, other ones that have been, been introduced to some good opportunities in the cannabis space over the last few years. And that just feels a little bit risky to me from a, a regulatory standpoint in terms of what's what might happen over time, whether it's, uh, you know, what, yeah, yeah, again, a state might kind of change the rules one way or the other in terms of distribution, manufacturing. So I've seen a few of those that look really enticing from a return standpoint, but yeah, felt felt too risky for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, where are you most bullish kind of in the next few years and where are you kind of placing your capital? I mean, especially in this, you know, high inflation environment that we're experiencing right now and mm-hmm. it was maybe some risk on the horizon with increases of uh in interest rates and other things, but right. You know, what where do you kind of seen as the opportunity, you know, that you're positioning yourself for? You know, I'm, I'm still looking uh, into mobile home park opportunities mm-hmm. for sure. I also have been looking at apartments as well. I mean, I still feel like this is, you know, we've we're seeing inflation, right? It's here, we're seeing it, it's, it's, and it's going to be with us for a while. So I still think we're in that sweet spot right now where you can still get you know, low interest rate, long-term mm-hmm. debt, you know, with the future uh, rent growth uh, through inflation. So so I'm you know, looking seriously at, uh, at apartment investments, probably in you know, secondary or tertiary markets because you know, the uh, top tier markets are just so expensive right now and there's so much competition. So I've been looking at that. I've also been looking at um, triple net opportunities because those cap rates have seemed to have kind of almost come in line more with, uh, with other multifamily. Mm-hmm. I think with those, you, know, you don't have the you know, with built-in rent growth in a, in a triple net lease, you don't have that ability to take advantage of inflation. Right. What kind of, uh, kind of cap rates are you seeing on, on triple net? You know, I've seen and I've looked at, looked at properties in kind of like Michigan, Ohio area. And sometimes you'll see those in the 7-8% cap range. Really? Yeah. And that, that would probably not be with the national retail or hospitality or um, you know, it's like, uh, like CVS or advanced auto parts right. or um, yeah, retail, you know, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, places right. like that. Yeah. But but that would be a, a national credit tenant? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, but again, those, those might only have, uh, you know, two or 3% rents over a sure. five or 10 year period. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, one investment like that, like, okay, that's good. It's a solid. It doesn't you know, scale with inflation. Tenant. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Awesome. Well, Todd, it's been great to have you on the podcast here and, and love uh, hearing your thoughts on mobile home space and just passive investing in general. For anyone that wants to get a hold of Todd, learn more about uh, mobile home parks or other asset classes. His website is uh, bluelminvestments.com, and we'll link to that here in the show notes. And then he also wrote a book called The Success Habits of Super Achievers, which is a number one Amazon bestseller and uh, tips and inspiring stories to accelerate your success. So go check that out. Todd, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to connect. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. Love your guys' show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, I had a good time. All right. Thanks. <laughs> 